You're listening to Story Power, the podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. These are the stories of everyday people changing the world. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Joaquina M. Reed thrives as an educator, researcher, writer, public speaker, and community advocate. She is the creator and curator behind the social media platforms, the Anti-Blackness Reader Project, and Hug Your White Friends. She holds a Master of Arts degree in Communication Studies and is a published researcher, conference presenter, and public speaker. Her public advocacy is largely inspired by her academic research relating to social power and race and gender identity constructions. Today on the show, I have Keena Reed, and I just want you all to know that I brought snacks because I'm planning on sitting here and talking for a while. (laughs) Um, Very sadly, our first recording died and went somewhere that I can't find. And so we're starting out for a second time here. And um, I'm really grateful for you, Keena, and just for your willingness to come back on and to be the first guest on the Story Power podcast. Yay! I'm Neil Armstrong. (laughs) So um, what are we talking about today? We have a lot to talk about today, don't we? So much to talk about. Yeah. What I'd like to do is just tell people a little bit about who you are, how we met, and what you do. So who am I today? (laughs) Right? Right. Isn't that like an ongoing project? You know, I have really resisted certain labels. And I think what I'm supposed to say is that I am an anti-racist educator. I feel like that is like the textbook answer. So I'm going to I'm going to give you that. Right. So I guess the textbook answer is my name is, you know, Kina Reed and I am a anti-racist educator. I am an anti-blackness scholar and writer and thinker. I am the creator of uh, two social media projects, the Black Collective known as the Anti-Blackness Reader Project, um, and then Hug Your Right Friends, which is where I do my anti-racism work. Um, But I should also add that I am a direct descendant of enslaved peoples from West Africa, and I am the fifth generation of people in my family who can legally read and write in the United States. And I didn't realize that until about two years ago. And for whatever reason, that feels like that's a really important component to everything I do, right? So um, I'm also Sagittarius. (laughs) I'm a Pisces. I don't know anything about a Sagittarius. And I feel like you will appreciate this, Jen. So I turned 40 last year. And I'm officially a grown up, right? Like, like that was 40 did. Right. And, and so like, since then, I want coffee all the time. I have not had a coffee machine in my home for years. Like I had one once, maybe like seven years ago. And then I like, I used it three times. And then I was like, I'm not using this. And then I like gave it to a family member. But then I turned 40 and they're like, all of a sudden... I need like 
a fancy coffee maker thing with a frother. And so now I'm a coffee drinker. So those are the things that people know about me today, that I also drink coffee, apparently. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, that's about me. How we met, I have no clue, right? I, mean, <laughs> I think we just largely met. I started following Speaking of Racism podcast. It's freaking amazing. And then from there, I started having conversations with you and Tina. And then you all invited me to do the thing. You know, I refuse to use the term. Yeah. You all invited me to do the thing <laughs> on speaking of racism. Let's see. How would we call it? You were a guest presenter for yes. the day. We previously called it uh, an IG takeover, but have since refrained from using that terminology. Thank you, Tina. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you were a guest presenter. Yes, because we do not want any of our work to unconsciously support white colonial projects. Amen. <laughs> so, yeah, and so from there, we've just been in community and communication, and you've been so gracious, and, you know, I feel so... It's a shitty reason to gather with people, right? To be like, yeah. we created community as a result of all these violent systems that we're directly addressing and attacking. Right. Um, but it's something to be super thankful for that along the way you get to to be in community with awesome people. So yeah, that's how we met. And I feel like we have a very good affinity towards one another because we both like long stories. <laughs> Are you saying I like to talk a lot? <laughs> I like to talk a lot. And I like to listen to you talk a lot because you have a lot of stuff to say. It works out perfectly. <laughs> you know, and, you know, there's, again, there's multiple violent systems that we fight along the way. I'm someone who definitely identifies as an intersectional feminist. And so what's interesting is, again, part of like all of this work to decolonize myself, you know, I got to a point where I just became super comfortable with saying, yeah, I talk a lot. Like, like I feel like being conditioned as a woman, like yeah. you're taught, like, just kind of like be silent and don't, what is it? Like be seen, not heard. Yes. And I finally gave that up about seven years ago. I was like, mm -mm, it ain't working. Yeah. Even I when it. I try, it doesn't work. So I just gave up the ghost. Yeah. And something happened for me. Like my husband was going through executive training and he comes home and he's like, oh my gosh, I learned so much in this class. And I'm like, oh, cool. Tell me about it. And I'm expecting him to tell me that he learned all about himself. And he said, you are such an extrovert. And it was funny because we're <laughs> laughing. And, and in all honesty, at that point, I was on the fence with like, am I an extrovert or an introvert? Because the reality mm -hmm. is like, I don't like surface. After he said that, it did something for me where I was like, I'm going to step into this and I'm going to test this out. What does it mean to be an extrovert? And just yeah. going and doing that and then realizing that like so much of my hesitation and wondering if I was an introvert and all of that really was because I had internalized so much of that. You're too much. You're too loud. You're too opinionated. You come across too strong, you know, and like it, yeah. it's just been really freeing. For a while, I thought I was one of those introverts who presents as extroverts. Because that's a thing, right? There's lots of introverted people who are like, they can perform being an extrovert. Um, but COVID really proved that that wasn't right. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
But it's weird though. I think there's just so many levels to it, right? Because right. I, I definitely value silence and this completely went left, which is what happens when you and I get together, right? We have six <laughs> different conversations. I'll but, get us uh, back yeah. on track after that. Yeah. But like I, I value silence and I think that's much more connected to how much I think about things and I feel like maybe that comes across wrong yeah I know that people think about things a lot okay <laughs> <laughs> like do they I think though? hard I think hard all the time yeah I don't know how to be surface and that's probably why you and I get along together I'm gonna tell a story uh it's not really a story but a friend of mine Kat is a history professor um, and a formal colleague. And we were at this Halloween party and I mean, people were drinking, you know what I'm saying? Like tequila shots, right? Sure, we sure. were at a Halloween party, music's playing and all that stuff. And I'm so awkward at those things because it's like, again, I don't know how to do small talk. So some kind of way, Kat and I make eye contact and I'm like, hi. And Kat's like, hi. And she starts talking to me. I'm like, okay, I need to give you a heads up. I was like, if this goes past five minutes, I'm most likely going to start talking about chattel sleep. All right. And Kat looks at me. She's like, cool. Let's just go to that then. And so here we are at a Halloween party. People were like getting effed up, drinking all that stuff. And Kat and I are talking about the implications of child slavery. So I just think like that is a very telling theme of like just how deeply I think all the time. I feel seen and understood. Like it's so true. (sighs) Now I just need to get up the gumption to actually say just so you know if we talk for more than this many minutes (laughs) we're going to be talking about racial justice patriarchy human trafficking and how to abolish the death penalty and you and then you're like and you you get to decide that right like that person gets to decide like oh i'm gonna walk away now yep exactly think about it i mean do you think it's possible that like even that is like some kind of I mean, I think there's an implication there that we're wrong for not wanting to just talk about, like, football. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. Why, why is it bad that we're like, yeah, I mean, that's my go-to. You know what I'm saying? So it's interesting yeah. to think that to a certain extent we've made to feel maybe embarrassed about being someone who doesn't want to talk about the weather for longer than three minutes. Oh, seriously. Yeah. All right. So we're going to switch gears here. And today, what we're going to talk about is um, actually Kina's idea, the great insurrection. And we want to talk about what happened at the Capitol building on Wednesday. So Kina, I would love to hear your thoughts and just like, where were you? What were you thinking? And, And just kind of what was going on in your sphere when everything started to go sideways at the Capitol building? Thank you for acknowledging that I coined it that. Yeah. I feel like that's such a fitting term for it. Yeah. Both in the sense that it was large, right? So when we think about great, we're thinking like quantitatively, right? Like a significant amount of mostly white people were like, rah! Not great in the sense of the adjective, right? Because it wasn't a good word, Mm -hmm. you know? No. And I'm curious about the future, we're definitely going to see two narratives that come out of this, right? Yes. And so what I think is going to be very interesting is we already know, fast forward 20, 25 years, 40 years, when this incident 
happened to be placed in into history books. People say that books are either published for California or published for Texas. Had you ever heard that before, Jen? No. Okay. Ha ha. Okay. So basically across the Bible Belt, when schools, boards, and school districts are ordering books, they're mm-hmm. either ordering like the TX version of it okay. or the California version. So basically publishers make those their two markets. You see what I'm saying? So if you are creating, let's say, an eighth grade U.S. history textbook for the Texas, Texas market, the likelihood that the term slave shows up may be minute depending on the text. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so you already know, given the framework of K through 12, assuming that they still have some kind of text that will be primary in the classes, mm-hmm. rather that's like physical books or maybe eBooks, that there are going to be people who want to frame the great insurrection as a liberatory protest to guarantee voter freedom. Mm. But then on the other side, especially people who in real time see this and see it and, and are living through it, right. we're like, uh-uh, hell no, that's not the truth. And so one of the things that's going to be interesting is looking at how that narrative, like how that shows up in books, you know? And I'm so excited that we live in a time where we get to be a part of that narrative building. Right. And so there are going to be so many sources that say, no, this is actually what this was. It wasn't a protest. These weren't protesters. These were terrorists. This was a domestic terrorist attack. And so, yeah, it's just, it's really interesting to think about it from this like future oriented place where we already know that white supremacy and whiteness will demand that we enshrine these people as heroes. And that is what we see happen in the United States history anyway, right? Is that the Civil War and in the South particularly, right? Like that, the the framing of that is that, you know, the Confederates were uh, for states' rights, and that they weren't rebellious, but they were standing up for individual freedom. And right. we now know there's nuance and that's not accurate. But I don't even take it a step back. Growing up in New York, you know, how that conversation always happens is the South was rebellious and the North, we the North had a value and an ethic of democracy and forward thinking. Mm. But the North was the industrial arm of the country prior to the Civil War engagement. And that industrial arm was significantly built up by the enslavement of African peoples. And so when I learned about slavery growing up in the, you know, in NYC metropolitan area, it was like, yeah, South bad, North great, the end. And so now it's like, okay, but we have to contextualize that too. The North was equally, and I stand by this, equally responsible for the endangerment and the dehumanization of Black people. Right. 
And it's super important that we always, always investigate that. I mean, I I have people who say that now. They say, well, you know, the South is racist. And I'm like, and so is the rest of this country, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I don't know what reality you're living in. You get what I'm saying? Like, right. it, it manifests itself different. Sure. Totally sure. Yeah, right? But equally racist, equally anti-Black. Yeah. I think this is a good segue to talk about the anti-Blackness that showed itself up yeah. on Wednesday. Because I'm not hearing that be said out loud. And uh, I'm used to it, right? One of my major concerns on Wednesday was early in the day, my fear was like, oh, no one's going. People are going to try to have this conversation in silos. And they're going to try to have this conversation without acknowledging race. And I'm so thankful that as the day progressed, more and more people were able to provide that racial lens to the conversation. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that's being maintained. So that's good, right? Like, that's great. Because I was like, everyone's going to want to make this about something other than how race frames all of our institutions, including the political ones. Mm-hmm. But part of that too is like, no, this wasn't just a racist act, but this is also really anti-black too, right? And I'm gonna get back to you when I because I can specifically tell you what I mean when I say this was an anti-black moment. Yeah. yeah. But um to to your question, my response initially, like very early mm-hmm. on, I got on Facebook because I was just freaked out and I was just like I kept thinking this wouldn't have been this way if these were black people. Right. Um, So like that was my first kind of wave. And then in my mind, I started thinking about Atiana Jefferson. Atiana Jefferson in October, 2019 was murdered in her parents' home by Aaron Dean an officer of the state, right? For sticking her head out a window, right? And so all I kept thinking, like I started thinking about Atiana and then I started thinking about Brianna then I started thinking about Tamar and then I started thinking about George, right? And so it's just like, shit. Mm -hmm. Bad people have been murdered by the state for less. And at that point, I start crying and I start shaking. And like for about an hour, I have no control over my body. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't call it a rage gin, right? Yeah. I, I think I know the distinction. I don't know what that was. I mean, maybe it was a mixture. Maybe it was rage and hopelessness and tiredness, you know? Because I just like, this makes no sense. Mm-hmm. But then it does because I know what the the premise and the foundation of this experiment is. And there is no hesitation for me to say that the very foundation of the United States is an anti-Black one. Right. So, um, yeah, that was my my initial reaction, which was like, all these Black people who aren't here, but all these white people get to act the fool. That was my initial reaction. Yeah, well, I mean, and we spent the last, I would say, what is it, eight to 10 months specifically seeing incredibly triggering images of the militarization of the government, the militarization of police forces against peaceful protesters, and then juxtaposed with these white men 
just walking in and women, but the, the few people that kind of come to mind, the photos that are infamous at the moment, you know, seeing these men just kind of walk in like they were on a, like, like they were just tourists in the Capitol building, just checking it out, walking around, other people carrying podiums out, sitting up at the speaker's desk, the flagrance, the arrogance, the assurance that they had and that they felt and that they knew in their bodies that they were entitled to take up that space. To see those two things so starkly, I I don't have words for it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of those things that can create such cognitive dissonance in your mind. One of the things I've been trying to do is give myself permission that I don't have to feel all the feels about it today. I don't even have to feel all the feels about it this week, right? Like something like that happens. And I think there can be waves of response to it and waves of feelings about it, you know? And so kind of speaking to the anti-Blackness of that, like I have a couple things to think about. So like, um, first of all, like the same day, right? So like the first thing you say is the people, the insurrectionists were there because of the president of the United States, the current occupant directed them there to fight on his behalf. So march to the Capitol and let everyone know that you're very upset that this election was stolen from us. And I think Trump's really brilliant in that regard. I'm one of those people who stopped thinking he was a dummy a while ago. <laughs> now there's room to debate it, Jen, but I'm not one of those people who thinks like, oh, this guy just, he's a doofus, a well-meaning doofus. No, evil genius. Right. Um, Street so smart. He, that use of, yeah. So the use of collective pronouns, they've taken this from us. This is happening to us. Right. And he's asking his base to emotionally connect that something is taken from them. And that is really smart because that's been a tool that has been a rhetorical signifier for white supremacists for a very long time. Right. You want to get a group of white people acting a fool, tell them someone's taking something from them. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? So Trump's not the first and he won't be the last. So that was a really smart rhetorical like framework for him to to catch on early on. Now, what I will say, the strategies that Trump is using aren't new, right? Like Trump's whole Make America Great Again is only a remix of things he saw happening with Nixon's Southern strategy. Even Ronald Reagan had his own version of a Make America Great stance. So that premise isn't new, right? Right. So... Going back to the anti-Black part. So Trump, he sends this militia to the Capitol directly to confront the election results that he feels are are taking from him. But one of the things that I haven't heard people say out loud enough, and I've heard Black people say this, but I don't, I haven't heard enough people who are not Black saying this, is Trump was just very specific about the votes that didn't matter. Right. Right. He was very specific about the votes that were not legitimate. And those were black and brown votes. So when we think about Detroit, when we think about Atlanta, when we think about Philadelphia, these were the places where he was contesting the election, a.k.a. here are black people who shouldn't have probably been voting in the first place. 
they weren't a part of those 39 delegates of the Constitution's understanding of who was enfranchised. So why should they matter now? Yeah. And so that's what I mean, like, anti-Blackness is the suit that they walked up on on the steps with. Mm -hmm. And this is what's ironic for me. You want to delegitimize the vote of a people, of a population, that make democracy possible. And I say this, too, with every fiber of my being. It was not George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or any of those 39 delegates at the Constitutional Convention. There was more than 39 delegates there. 39 delegates signed the Constitution. Let me make that clear. I think there were like 52 delegates at the convention altogether. It doesn't matter. I'm not a historian. But 39 delegates signed it, right? They are not the people who made democracy manifest in the United States. Exactly. So isn't that an irony, right? <laughs> like, like, Trump's mad in 2021 that Black people voted him out of the White House that they built for free mm -hmm. <laughs> for a practice that they made come to life in the United States. Right. So that there's just like a shitload of irony there. And so, yeah, I think that when we talk about the great insurrection, um, we have to talk about it as an anti-Black moment as well. It was. It was a response to Black agency. It was a response to Black enfranchisement. It was a response to the fact that the very first senator from Georgia, you know, Reverend Warnock got elected into Senate that day. Yeah. So it was a response to all of that. White people stay mad. Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah, I just think it's important that we always work hard for those of us who are educated on these issues. We always work hard and say, yes, this is a racist act. Great. Let's talk about how it's racist. But let's also talk about how it's anti-Black. And I guess that's also another. I keep creating segues for myself here. Just stop me when you need me to. OK, I will segue the hell out of myself. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like. This is why it's also important we understand the distinctions, right? Because if you look at some of the flags that were carried in that moment, Amen. right? Amen. So, you right? Like, those were just white people out there. Uh-huh. Right? Which people don't want to talk about it. I got it. I understand. It makes you uncomfortable. Sure. Uh -huh. But at the most basic tenet, right? Like, when I try to give people the most easiest way to understand what um, anti-blackness is i always say there's complexity there for sure but the easiest way to understand it is the conceptualization of anything that denies black personhood and so yes lots of things can be racist especially if we understand racism as something working through institutional structural mediums sure but on top of all that Here's the denial of Black personhood. And that's important that we learn how to call that out, call attention to it, and say those things out loud. One of the charges for me in this moment and moving forward anytime someone brings up the great insurrection is to make sure we label it as, yes, it was a racist triumph and an anti-Black moment in this country's history. Yeah. So those are some observations. Again, I am growing elasticity as a scholar and as a writer 
and in this work. So I think it's important to talk about how I landed on anti-Blackness. I'm going to try to make this as short as possible. So, you know, every generation has those moments that mark their being, right? You know, for some people, it was Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. For others, it's 9-11. You know, all these things that happen that have this ontological weight, right? And so when Trayvon Martin was murdered, I was teaching Gosh, I don't know if I was teaching in Louisiana, Texas. I just know that I was teaching in at a, at a college, a public college. And at that time, I was talking about race in my class, but I wasn't talking about it um, explicitly. So the, peop- the way I always frame this is I was hiding the spinach in a brownie mix, right? Intercultural communication is one of my fields of study. And so we, we, we spend a lot of time talking about intercultural competencies, right? Like how do we communicate across cultures? And a lot of that conversation usually sounds like how do dumb quote unquote Americans go to Europe without pissing off Europeans, you know? But I, as a Black woman, I felt really important that I had to also bring into those conversations some understanding about how having racial difference matters. But again, it was very digestible for white people, okay? Mm -hmm. I have no problem owning that. And then Trayvon Martin was murdered, and I was like, oh, shit, right? Yeah. Post-Trayvon Martin, I became very explicit in talking about race in the class. And so not only was I talking about racial identity construction in the class, I was specifically bringing my body into the conversation, right? So talking about my very lived experience of being Mm -hmm. a Black person in the United States. And that is when I started to see just the full-on aggression and resistance that came along with doing that. Um, Because I've always taught at institutions that for the most part, you know, primarily people who identified as white. So right. Trayvon gets murdered. I become a radical radical, I guess, according to my students, right? I was super <laughs> sassy. Um, yeah. And then um, fast forward to 2016 and Alton Sterling is killed in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is the city that I, I have recently moved to. And there's something about living in a place that is holding the weight of Black death. It changes you. I'm not saying it was easier to ignore state-sanctioned violence against Black people prior to moving Mm. to Baton Rouge, but living someplace where Black people are openly wounded. Mm. The community is openly wounded. So it's two things, right? (laughs) Double-check my timeline, listeners. But in 2016, I think, is when Bill Cosby gets indicted. Now, I'm going to be really careful here. So I'm going to start off by saying Bill Cosby is very much guilty of the crimes he's done against women. There's no doubt in my mind. There's no hesitation. Okay. But what I am saying is, is the framing of his crimes was a really interesting thing to see. Alton Sterling, I'm living in Baton Rouge. I'm seeing the weight of Black trauma. And then I'm also seeing how Bill Cosby is framed, right? In relationship to like Harvey Weinstein's or Roman Pulaski's, right? Or right. Seventh Heaven Dad. I forget what that actor's name is. Do you oh, know? Oh, I forgot. 
Exactly. I forgot exactly. about that. Yeah. You forgot about that. That's because mm-hmm. they were like, you've raped women and you have done violence against children. Go in a corner somewhere and sit down forever. Well, Bill Cosby is like, oh no, you don't get to go in a corner and sit down forever. You have to be hung out to dry on the highest goalpost in the town. So right. those two things really made me say out loud and to myself, oh, it doesn't matter how I black in this country. And I know that is really a weird statement. I, I would even say three things because it's Sandra Bland, right? Which yeah, that's footage I still haven't been able to look at to this day. Mm-hmm. So it's Sandra Bland and it's Alton Sterling and living in the community where he was murdered and Bill Cosby. And it just really, all those things come together to make me just kind of say, there's no safe way to be Black here. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because prior to that, I'm going to tell you, I, I subscribe to whiteness. And that's why, I mean, to a certain extent, because I don't, I know it's not the same for me. But when I talk about divesting from whiteness, I'm not talking about something I'm divorced from. Right. I'm not. I tell people all the time, Black people subscribe to whiteness. All, in fact, anyone who's a professional, anybody in the United States has a subscription. So... At 2016, I'm like, it doesn't matter how I'm Black in this country. It ain't safe. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I just made a decision. I was like, well, since I'm not safe anyway, (laughs) let it rip. (laughs) Yeah. And so I just was like full throttle. Jen, I stopped code switching. We don't have time to explain code switching, listeners. Look it up. It's very easy. But I was like, it doesn't matter how I talk. It doesn't matter how I wear my hair. It doesn't matter where I dress. I am Black. And even in the places where I try to minimize that shit, it makes no difference. And so that's where I started my unapologetic journey into Blackness, which if you think about it, it's not that long, right? Sure. I've been Black, Black for how many years? (laughs) We don't have to unpack that on your show. So anyway, (laughs) 2016, fast forward. 2018, I don't have to go through the list of how many Black people were murdered by the state. But what I will say... Is it when, well, fast forward to 2019 when Atiana Jefferson gets killed. So prior to Atiana's murder, I was aware, again, of state-sanctioned violence against Black people by way of the police state. All right, I want to make that really clear. I wasn't naive to it. Um, But I think because I've been enculturated into whiteness, conditioned into white supremacy, in some dusty corners of my mind, I think I was still on some level reasoning some of the other murders, right? Like somewhere. And again, I can't say my dusty corner of my brain, right? Because those are dark places. And then Atiana gets murdered because she stuck her head out of the window. And then I started thinking, there's something that I am missing here. Why is this happening to Black people? This has to be more than just racism. It has to be more than just racism. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, and mind you, my, my research, my academic research is on race and gender identity construction. So I've been studying that stuff for 15 plus years. So the scholar in me is like, there's something I'm not, there's a dot I'm not connecting. There's a dot I'm not connecting. And so what I started doing, and that's because who I am in the world, I started to read a lot of Afrofuturist work Mm -hmm. and Afro-pessimism at the same time. And So you're stretching your brain in two different directions. Yes. Yes. Um, Because for the most part, 
Afrofuturism is about expanding our understandings about the African diaspora and what does it mean to be Black and future-oriented outside of the prescriptions of white supremacy and white colonial settler projects. Afro-pessimism looks at the very real ways that Black people are endangered across the global world. And there's a lot more to it. I'm just giving you the like condensed version of these things. In doing that, but I like how you put it, stretching my brains in two separate directions. I was like, oh shit, that's it. I don't know if it's fair to say we're comfortable talking about anti-racism, right? But in 2020, people at least pretended they were. Everyone keeps having this conversation, but they're leaving out this whole other part. If racism is speaking to the ways in which people are giving less or more equity, less and more resources in institutions and structures and society, that has shit to do with humanity. Right. Right. And anti-Blackness is very much talking about all the ways that people do not see people from an Africanist sport as human beings. While those are closely related projects that definitely interweave within themselves, those are distinct conversations. And so I was like, there it goes. It's like talking about someone's alcoholism without talking about the trauma that created it. Mm, That's an interesting analogy. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And so I make the argument and I stand behind this. So if anyone wants to come for me, I'm okay with this because I've thought about this a lot. What comes first, the chicken or egg? What comes first? And I'm going to say anti-Blackness comes before racism does. I'll stand by that and I'll take the heat if I have to. Because here's the thing. In the 15th century, when white guys across Europe get in boats and they sail to Africa and they start seeing how great thou art in Africa, they start to try to understand how these people so brilliant, these indigenous African people are so great, right? But at the same time, their their journals talk about the difference in ways that mark them as animals. Right. This happens as early as the 15th century. No, hell, it starts in the 14th century. Correct myself. 14th century that manifests itself in writing when people are talking about Africans and they talk about them in terms of like, in, in very animalistic terms. So by the time everyone's like being cool, like all the cool kids get on boats and sell the words. So way before people were actually enslaved, I'm not going to say way before, but I'm just saying before people were actually enslaved and there was a system of enslavement and chattel slavery, the anti-Black notion was there. Like these people, that's part of the reason why enslavement happened. You get what I'm saying? Because people had access to journals that said, oh, they're not human. And thus it begins. And so until we can have very real conversations about this is racist and anti-Black. And so that's the premise of the anti-Black project. So that's what I mean. So like I started to do the work in my mind. And once I got that answer for myself, I was like, okay, so what's the response to this? Because I am both like an educator at heart and academic, right? So I'm like, okay, I got the answer. I've landed on the answer. Like, what's the response? What do I owe to people at this point? Mm. You know? So I always tell people that the Anti-Blackness Reader Project showed up in my head before it showed up on Instagram. I sat with it for about seven months. I didn't know how to reckon with it. I was like, oh, it's like a new discovery for me. How do I translate this for others? And let me tell you what's hard to do in the United States. And it might be hard to do in the global West. But let me tell you, it is hard being Black and saying this is just for us. Yeah. (laughs) That's super hard. 
Right. So I was like, how do I do this? How do I say this thing is just for us? So that was that tension. And then there's this other real tension, which is racism is real throughout the whole damn world, right? Mm -hmm. There are people who are in cages. There are people who've lost their children. There are people, I mean, I, I don't need to go. The list goes on and on. And so I was like, how do I do this in a way that doesn't replicate harms? And how do I do this in a way that doesn't minimize the very real effects of racism? And I still struggle with that. It's an ongoing struggle, Jen, you know, because I never want to frame myself as someone who's saying no one else's shit matters, right? Sure. I try to be really intentional when I'm talking about the whole of systemic violence, because there's a whole lot of different systems that attack people across the board. But the best analogy I can make is for people who, like, if you go to a doctor and he's like, you have cancer, most of people's follow-up would be where? Right. We need a very specific diagnosis because he can't just be like, well, I'm going to just give your whole body radiation. That's most likely not necessary. Mm, Yeah. And so the work that I'm doing is trying to articulate a very specific type of violence and remedy a very specific type of violence while simultaneously acknowledging that all those other violences exist too. And that's the work of the Anti-Blackness Reader Project. Yeah, and that's how I found you, was your work through the Anti-Blackness Reader Project. When I started moving into podcasting, and you know, my beginning story was speaking of racism, people would approach me and say, but you know, why don't you talk about this kind of racism and this kind of racism and this kind of racism? And I'm like, you know, I'm really focused on this conversation about it, but I didn't have the language at the time. But what you're saying is this anti-Blackness, like what is it about anti-Blackness and and what is it about the history of our nation and what can we learn so that we can gather and understand and have a framework for why it is we're where we are today and how do we then break free from this stuff. Could you imagine being in a doctor's office and could you imagine a brain cancer patient going up to like a breast cancer survivor and being like, who had it worse? There's no question about who's had it worse or not. There is no oppression Olympics. Right. Well, I am a cancer survivor. And so I often use this analogy in things where people like quit talking about it, quit going on about it, talking about it's part of the problem and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, I had cancer. And I'm like, and I've got to tell you something. I would never look at my doctor and say, you know what? Let's not talk about it. I don't want to know where it is, how it got there, or what I can do to maybe cure myself and live, right? Like who would do that? Nobody. You know, so let's let's get real here. The discomfort is what you want to avoid. Definitely. And I and another metaphor I've been using recently, too, is like for people who parent, one hopes that you equally love all your children. <laughs> hopes, right? I'm not saying anything. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying parents out there, one hope that you equally love all your kids, but you love right. them differently too, right? Amen. And so what looks like boundaries and protection for one child may not necessarily fit with the other. And so to that score, I would say that all black and brown people have experienced violence in this country, right? 
let's not get started into like the first peoples. Right. That I will be here for hours. Yep. And then we start talking about our our Asian brothers and sisters and the ways that their labor was discounted from them too, right? The list goes on and on. But I think when we provide a framework of the United States and the Americas, but specifically the United States, there's something to be said about how two particular groups of people bore the the, the weight of the construction of the experiment. Mm. And that has to be to be said out loud. It has to be rectified. Yeah. And in 2021, I'm walking around demanding from Joe Biden's administration that this will be the year we see a Department of African-American Affairs show up. Ooh. How, how the hell did that shit get missed in Reconstruction? Who? Yeah. It doesn't exist, BT Dub. Right. You know? And yeah. I'm thankful that there's a Department of Native American Affairs. I'm thankful. And that's done very little Mm-hmm. very little to respond right. to the violence first people experience and indigenous people experience in this country. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's just where I am. And I'm excited about the project because it's a, it's a learning for me too, as we go along, you know, one of the things that's going to happen in 2021, which I was like, do I need to announce this? Like I've gone back and forth. I'm like, nope. Cause I've said it out loud that, Hey, anti-blackness people who aren't black, I'm glad you enjoy it. This shit's not for y'all, right? Right. <laughs> and, so, and so I was just like, 2021, it's going to even get blacker. And you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, so let's let's talk about that for a minute. So the Anti-Blackness yeah. Reader is your one of your projects on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And you have built a Patreon community around this, yes? Well, so here's the thing. My Patreon community is built around all the projects. Okay, cool. It's just radical community. You get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's it's undoing violence in just different ways. The Anti-Blackness Project is for centering Black stories, telling Black truths, and exposing anti-Blackness. I think in the process of that, a lot of people who aren't Black learn things, which is great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, this is in the to be frank, it's been a learning project for me because early on when I started getting like slew of white followers, there was a moment where like my, it was like my mind's playing tricks on me, but I was like, Oh, there's a lot of white people. So I need to, to make sure that the content is something that they can digest. No. (laughs) What the hell? Right. This is the opposite of what I'm trying to do. Exactly. And I say that, right? That's a transparent moment for me to say that out loud because that's how deeply whiteness is entrenched in me. I've been conditioned to make white people comfortable when they show up. Yeah. Even when I'm not trying to. Yeah, no, I think it's good for us to enter into spaces and learn quietly and to understand and to be able to navigate like what's not for us. How do we show up? That's a good practice. That is such a good practice. And yeah. I said it's a good practice for white people. I mean, that's a good practice for straight people. That's a good practice for cisgender people, right? There's mm-hmm. some places where, like, I can't speak to it. Yeah. And I need to learn how to be on the hush. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, again, it's it's like me living out my, my own um, work to decolonize my life. 
to center my blackness and to center my truth, right? And so that's what mm-hmm. the Anti-Blackness Project does. It is in that truth, in that in the spirit of that truth, I got comfortable enough to learn how to be like, white people, get the hell out of my face. Mm-hmm. And that's how the Hug Your White Friends Project got created. So learning how to tell white people no is not organic. When we've been conditioned to make white comfort a priority. And I would even go further to say, so not only have I been conditioned to respond to white comfort and to make it a priority, I would argue that we've been conditioned to protect white life. So what we saw at the Capitol on January 6th was just that, right? Like people are like, Oh, the Capitol Police weren't given instructions or they didn't have jurisdiction. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. To commit violence against mm. this group of people. And I say that's a whole bunch of tomfoolery because no one ever had to say out loud to any one of those police officers. It doesn't matter what their racial or ethnic background is. You know, there's a, a video, and I don't know when I see it, rather to laugh or cry, I think maybe both responses are appropriate. And I know you've seen this one, too. It's the Black police officer who has a baton in his hand, and he goes to, like, use it against the white mob, and it stops. It's like an invisible hand out of nowhere stops him. Huh. I have not seen it. You should check it out. I will. Yeah, I'm still catching up on everything, right? Yeah. I mean, really, and like, instead ooh. of extending the force of the baton, he turns and he runs away from the white mob. Really? Oh, completely fascinating. <sighs> now, one could say there's lots of reasons, right? And I have not seen an interview of this black police officer yet. I don't know if he's going to show up. I don't know if anyone's going to find him. You could say, well, he was afraid. There was more of them than him. There's lots of things you can do to to try to understand that moment. But I say, even in an instance where his, his job gives him license to do violence to this white mob, he can't. Right. And that's because everyone's conditioned to protect white life. So what we saw, we should not be confused about, mm-hmm. is that officers went out of their way to avoid using aggression with this group of people. And it's not just because officers have been trained to think of themselves as sympathetic to protesters or sympathetic to people fighting for freedom, quote unquote. No, they've been conditioned to protect white life, even at their detriment. Right. And that's why they can easily shoot a black protester because that same conditioning isn't there. In fact, it's the opposite, right? Like, if they've been taught and conditioned to protect white life at all costs, the opposing thought is true that black life is not, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't hold weight. It's, they're not even human. So there's no question as to why a police officer who gets a call about 12-year-old Tamar Rice can shoot first. No questions asked. Yeah. Despite the fact that the same officer was told the gun was most likely not 
a real gun. I want to see, and I haven't seen anyone do this yet, but let's hold up a mirror from all the white shenanigans we saw with the great insurrection to the arrest video of Dylan Roof. Have you ever seen Dylan Roof's arrest, Jen? Yeah. Where's the difference? There is none. Officers roll up on Dylan Roof, someone that they know the day before had just literally killed nine people. They know he's armed. And only one out of, what, five of them actually had their weapon in hand? Yeah. And that was the black one. Come on. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying, like, when we want to talk about it, we want to call a thing a thing, that is going to have to be something that, and you know what? I'm not even going to say we need to talk about it. I don't need to talk about it, Jen. Right. Because know this shit. Right. That's the stuff white people are going to have to talk about. Why are we naturally inclined and conditioned? I mean, literally, I guess everyone could talk about it to the extent that we all acknowledge it out loud. But it, going into 2021, I've made this commitment to myself. And we're going to see that happen on the Hug Your White Friends page. I, I really want to make this sure this manifests itself very clearly. I do not think that we've made it distinct enough in our anti-racism circles, right? I hear a lot of people say things like, we all have a responsibility to end racism. And I say, hell no. That's my position yeah. right now. Yeah, I'm not responsible for ending anything I didn't create. I didn't create white supremacy. I didn't create whiteness, right? And so that's why I love that Tamika Mallory on the day of the great insurrection does this huge tweet where she's like, Black people, don't leave your house. This isn't our business. Like, and yeah. I love that. I'm like, I'm here for that. It's the truth. It is. It, absolutely. We didn't create any of this. We did right. not create any of this. But I think part of why we're still having some of these same struggles around race and ethnicity in this country is because for a very long time, Black people and people of color took ownership, full ownership of like, we've, we've got to end racism. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you think about it, isn't that just so bananas? Yeah. There's, there's a certain amount of ownership that has this- not in, in the white community. Oh, for sure. And this is such an interesting conversation for me, trying to learn and, and just learning about how to even identify and then deconstruct from whiteness has required that I learn from Black educators. And I wanted to say that because there's a, yeah. I do want to make it really clear, right? And again, I'm here for whatever feedback I want to get because So white supremacy, I didn't create it. Whiteness, I didn't create it. I'm not responsible for dismantling it, right? Right. Not my responsibility. This is how I want to frame it. I want to be really careful. We are not responsible for ending these systems we did not create. Full stop. Unfortunately, because of the survival that is necessary in this country, we've had to learn how to internalize those systems and make them manifest. Right. So this is why I say I have been a perpetrator of white supremacy. I have been a perpetrator of whiteness. So while I didn't create it and I'm not responsible for fixing it, I do think I have a role and a response to those things that are important in the dismantling. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Not my responsibility to fix it, 
but because I've manifested this stuff. And let me give you a really specific thing. So going back to me teaching at colleges and universities across the South, there are certain pieces of literature that I used in class that now if I can go back, I would change it, right? Like when sure. I think about the academic canon, I spent too many years just showing the white man's voice on something, mm-hmm. you know, like how horrible is it that I'm teaching intercultural competencies and I'm talking about the way that Muslims experience, you know, ethnocentrics from ethnocentrism from Americans, but I'm using like American voice to have that conversation. That's bad, Jen. So I know that I have perpetrated crimes. I have extended these violent systems because I've internalized them. So I do think that I'm not responsible for ending these things. I think what I need to do is learn how to use my energy to respond to them and to resource people who are responsible for ending them. Right. And so that's why even with the Hug Your White Friends, the premise is be resourced. If we're talking about anti-Blackness, then yes, you should be resourced from Black people, from Black femmes, from Black women, men, children, right? Mm-hmm. But don't emotionally lean on us and don't use us to sustain the work that you're going to have to do to divest. Yeah. So let's talk about Hug Your White Friends, because those who are listening right now might be like, oh, that's so sweet. She wants to hug white people. Right. But <laughs> why don't you explain to us what Hug Your White Friends means and is and how it was birthed? I know you touched on it a little bit in the beginning, but just to kind of So learning how to say no to white people is not organic. At least it wasn't organic to me um, until I started to really grapple with the internalized anti-Blackness that I had as a Black woman. So learning how to say no to white people has been hard. So after George Floyd is murdered, um, you know, after Breonna Taylor is murdered, and I also, I can't say this enough, how... 2020 was really inspiring, but equally condescending to have so many white people say, oh, oh yeah. it's racism. It's so horrid. Right. And it's, and it feels similar to what happened with the, on Wednesday, <laughs> you know, white people being like, this is a thing. Why didn't anyone tell us? Uh-huh. Like, huh? What? And so after George Floyd and Brianna's death, a lot of white people and non-Black people of color were like, this is bad. And I had people in my inbox who were like, I feel horrible about this. And I don't know what to do. Right. And my first thought was like, well, can you leave me alone? Because I feel bad too. Right. And I can't help you negotiate how you feel right now because I'm trying to negotiate my feelings. And I thought that was happening to me in isolation. And then I realized, oh, no, this is a thing. This is happening to so many Black people I know, where they are being bombarded with white people being like, I feel bad about this. Help me not feel bad about this. And also, make sure that you, while you do that, make it clear that I'm not like the people who killed George Floyd. And when I realized that that was happening across the community, I was like, oh, hell no. Mm-hmm. So I basically got really, really hot as a tick one night. 
and I got on my Facebook Live. It was probably like the first Facebook Live I ever created. And I was basically like, look, this is hard. We live in a country where we're hearing that we're always the best, that we have top-notch justice, that we're the land of liberty and freedom and the pursuit of happiness. And things like George Floyd serve as a very vivid testimony that that's not true. And you're experiencing cognitive dissonance. And you have a right to experience this cognitive dissonance, but do that with other white people. Right. Don't call me. Don't reach out to me. Find another white person and hug them. And Hug Your White Friends was born. I didn't realize that people would listen to my diatribe. <laughs> but they did. Yeah. It got shared. And then the teacher in me, this is a funny, cute part of the story. The teacher in me, after that first video, once like that night, it had like 700 views or something. I was like, oh, crap. I didn't realize so many people would listen. And then the teacher in me was like, oh, I didn't give anybody tools to like improve. <laughs> that is so you. I was like, I didn't give anybody any resources. Mm -hmm. So then I, I did the second episode and it, I really, again, wasn't expecting anyone to watch. And then people watched that one. And I was like, oh. And I think, Jen, at the same time, this is also when I'm like, there are a lot of white people on the anti-blackness reader project page and i think they think this is an anti-racist project and it's not right so i was like okay this is what i'll do i will make this a thing this will be the official anti-racism branch of my work and that's it and hug your right friends was created so there are two goals behind that project which is one it calls for white accountability one of the things that whiteness does not teach any of us is to be accountable. And that's why the Great Insurrection is going to be a very interesting moment in history to watch. But I'm just saying, whiteness does not breed accountability for white people. The rule of order, laws that exist in the United States don't exist to police white people. And so the first tenet of the Hug Your White Friends is to create or give guidance and encouragement for white people to rebuild that account of, well, I don't even want to say rebuild, to build and cultivate accountability right. for white people. Because yeah. the country in itself does not do that. Whiteness doesn't allow for it. And the second tenant here is, you know, even this week, I've been sending links to people that are Black people or people of color who are having conversations with white people about the great insurrection. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you don't have to have this conversation if you don't want to. Just tell them to push play on episode three. I love that. Because I don't think people realize how, how much bandwidth it takes to explain something to white people that they've been taught to deny. And you and I talked about this in our last, you know, missing recorded episode that I may never get over losing. Um, but one of the things that we talked about is, you know, like when everything kind of broke around the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and people started kind of getting out in the streets and protesting and everybody wanted to talk, you know, as a white deemed woman in this work, I knew this is my time to step in this gap so that 
you don't have to field these DMs and these conversations with all of the new people who are like, oh my gosh, racism is real, right? And like to to step in that space and do that for a solid three or four weeks, I was on the phone and doing Zoom calls and texting back and forth like around the clock. And it was a lot. And it was exhausting. And I don't say that to be like, oh, poor me. I say that to mean, like, for me, I don't have the same experience because this doesn't impact my body the way this impacts yours. Right. And so, like, I can't even fathom what kind of violence and, and just trauma that would create for you having to constantly have those conversations with people. And so I'm kind of like, okay, where are all the white people who swear they're co-conspirators and they want to, you know, fight for racial justice and all of that? Like, this is where you need to step in and have these conversations with your people and get your people. But there seems to be this block in a lot of folks, in a lot of white folks, like, what what do you think is keeping people from getting their asses off the couches and out from behind the keyboard warrioring to actually engage people and do this hard work and have these conversations? So I have three responses to that. So the first one is that, again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You're going to have to build a muscle around accountability that doesn't exist for white people. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. It's not an expectation that white people are accountable to anyone. And that's largely because one of the major tenets of whiteness is that failures are not articulated. They're ignored or they're redirected. So to say something is wrong is to, in some ways, acknowledge a failure. And so whiteness is like, nah, we don't, we're, not, we're not doing that. And that's why, again, it's really interesting to see if Donald Trump... And those terrorists will be held accountable because for accountability to happen, you have to be like, you have to acknowledge there was a failure somewhere along the way. And that's hard for whiteness. The second thing is, I think it's tricky because here's the thing. And, you know, I think you and I've talked about this. I've talked to a lot of people who work um, in these spaces is that while white people will, while some white people will say out loud, all of this is horrible. The other part they don't want to say out loud is I benefit from it. Yeah. And so if you start to do the actual work to tear Mm -hmm. these things down, you are simultaneously doing the work to take away things that you got that you didn't earn. And that's the part that people, like I always say that the manifestation of getting rid of systemic violence will cost us all something. And a lot of people are not willing to pay the cost. And the third thing is whiteness is much more situated to center itself than the sacrifice. Right. And I'm not going to call any names because this is your podcast, but not mine. But I'm sure if you had to real quick, you can think of three white women specifically. I mean, you can call names just fine. I don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) Call names. I want to (laughs) know. Well, let's think about someone like Robin, right? Oh, yeah. She's yeah, such yeah. a great example, I think, to me, of Ooh. someone who has done just enough. And I mean, I'm mm-hmm. ready for it. Like, I don't think Robin will ever find me. But if Robin ever finds me, great. We'll have a really great conversation. She's such a good example of someone who, for me, 
does just enough, right? So like mm-hmm. very white woman centering um, encourages that centering, but partners with just enough black people as a way to be like, oh no, I'm not centering myself because look at these like three black people that I talk to regularly. Right. Uh-uh. I see past the mirage. Because like mm-hmm. decentering yourself is like, hey, all these people who want to hire me here are these 20 black women that I'm in community with. You should hire instead. Cause I'm not saying anything. Amen. To them. Yep. In fact, I learned a lot of this shit from them. That's the part that uh-huh. really drives me is <laughs> Tim wise and Robin D'Angelo are not saying anything that Harriet Tubman wasn't right. And it, and you, you saw my tone change. Cause this is like what butters the bread. Mm-hmm. stop acting like you created the knowledge you didn't right if anything what white people are doing specifically in relationship to anti-racism and anti-blackness work is you're just confirming black truth and how shitty is it that we live in a world that robin has to say this shit instead of me exactly for people to believe it in the first place so one let's acknowledge that that's really shitty but two if that's the way it is great Say what you have to say and move off the stage. Exactly. And make space for other people. Exactly. And, but whiteness doesn't, again, we're talking about tenets of whiteness. That is antithesis of whiteness. Whiteness never says move around. And so I think those are the three reasons why we don't see more movement happening, right? Is that people, again, yeah. don't want accountability. They don't necessarily want to lose the benefits that they get. And lastly, they don't know how to do that without centering themselves. Mm-hmm. Even when, and this is really, and, and I want to say this, this is hard. It is hard to divest from whiteness. And it's especially hard to divest from whiteness when unfortunately for white people in this country, y'all have been told that's all you got. Yeah. And that's what those people who rush the Capitol that's what they were rushing the Capitol for. No one's saying that out loud, but they were rushing the Capitol in protection of whiteness. When we start thinking about Trump's base from the standpoint of class, when we add a class lens to that, poor white people, since the conception of this country, the conception of the colonies, like very early on, class was a structure. It always has been in the United States. And it was the white people who had shit and the white people who didn't. But the white people who had shit always found a way to frame why the people who didn't have shit didn't have shit. And they always made that about self-governance. And that is true today. And so I think when you tell people this is the only thing that's going to sustain you, hell yeah, you're willing to like kill people for it. And then that also goes back to why I say this is the work of white people to help other white people say, hey, we have a racialized experience. Hey, we actually have a class structure in the United States. See, we are screwed by that class structure in the United States. And right. D, we have to stop believing this is all we've got. Right. Like it is the it, it's the epitome of greatness. Yeah. And I mean, again, I'm going to I hope this doesn't bite me in the butt, but I understand why, because I understand the evolution of whiteness, right? Like literally 
European immigrants came to this country who were Italian and Irish and French and all these things. And people basically were like, look, we're not going to give you any kind of protections in this society unless you become white. And the opposite of white is not being black. And if you look around and if you come to the United States in like early 1800s, uh, of course you don't want to be black. Right. So, I mean, yeah. And at some point you have to reckon with that truth. And I feel sad. I, right. Cause let's think about it. White people saw white people act a fool. And that was interesting, Jen, seeing that. Because when I think about Charlottesville, we basically got two stills that ran all day. Mm-hmm. But we got front to back white people acting an ass on multiple networks. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in my life. Yeah. And so I'm watching white people act a fool. Like after I got over like the blatant anti-blackness of it, it was like a, a class in anthropology, you know? And not because I'm learning anything new, because no secrets there. White people be white people in. Right. But because I'm like, ooh, white people are showing white people act a fool. Exactly. This is new. Right. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so I was like, okay, what does this do for the community? What kind of conversations are going to be had? That's the question that I'm leaning into at the moment. Yeah. And I think that's the question a lot of people are going to have to lean into. This is probably a good place to stop our conversation for today. Thank you so much for being willing to come back to record this. Where can people follow you, support your Patreon, support your work, share your work? Yes. So uh, I have a website. It's JoaquinaReed.com, J-O-Q-U-I-N-A-R-E-E-D.com. And yes, it took me a second to spell my own name. Don't judge me. Uh, and then I have a Patreon too, and uh, it is patreon.com forward slash Kina Reed. So that's K I N A R E E D. All right. And Thank you. I'd love to have new people sign on to the Patreon to become a part of Radical Community because that is what it takes to, to eliminate violent systems across the globe. <laughs>